I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, Refiner. You may not realize it, but it's been a while since we've gotten together. I'm so glad to see you've returned for more Severed, the Ultimate Severance Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alan S. Our look at those things that inspired Dan Erickson as he was creating Severance continues with another installment of Severed Origins. This time out, we're going to break down the 1990 romantic comedy Joe vs. the Volcano. This is the movie that gave the world the dynamic rom-com duo of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. They would go on to star in three more movies together, Sleepless in Seattle from 1993, You've Got Mail in 1998, and Ithaca in 2015. As always, Refiner's horrific, mind-bending spoilers are ahead for Joe vs. the Volcano. If you'd like to watch it before you listen, this one isn't as readily available as some of the other Origins titles we've looked at. It's supposed to be streaming on the Cinemax Amazon channel and DirecTV. Since I don't have either of those, I can't confirm if this is accurate. I purchased a digital download through Amazon. Oh, also, this title, Joe vs. the Volcano, is kind of a mouthful. From here on out, you'll sometimes hear me abbreviate it as JVV. Okay, refiners, if you're ready, let's open the Origins file called Joe vs. the Volcano. I saw this movie in theaters when it came out in March of 1990. There was a period in our lives when Donna and I spent a huge amount of time in movie theaters. For about 10 years, from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, we could sometimes see three new movies in a weekend. Back then, we not only recognized all of the Best Picture nominees, we'd probably seen them. I remember thinking JVV was cute, but trite. It felt like it was going for something really big and profound, but just couldn't pin it down. The only reason we even saw it was for Tom Hanks. He was already that big a deal in 1990. To that point, he'd given us solid comedies like Splash, Big, The Money Pit, Nothing in Common, Punchline, and Two Seasons of Bosom Buddies, among many others. He was considered a comic actor through most of the 80s. His follow-up to Splash had been the hard-R frat bro hilarity of Bachelor Party. Amazing to think in just 10 years he'd be blowing our minds with traumatic turns in Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, and Apollo 13. He wasn't Tom Hanks in all caps just yet, but it was very obvious in 1990 that this guy was a talented and versatile movie star who was heading places. So aside from putting Tom and Meg together for the first time, I didn't see much value in this odd little movie. I was kind of surprised to find it on Dan Erickson's list of inspirations for Severance, and even more surprised to discover it has become a bit of a cult classic in its own right. I figured maybe I'd missed something. Maybe there was more here than I remembered. I pulled up the IMDb listing for JVV and saw it was both written and directed by John Patrick Shanley. This name rang a bell. Wasn't Shanley the name of the guy who won an Oscar for writing the script to Moonstruck? He would also go on to write the Tony Award-winning play Doubt. Could this Shanley who wrote JVV somehow be related? 
Well, much to my surprise, I discovered this Shanley was not related. He was the same guy. The man had already won an Oscar for his Moonstruck screenplay from 1987. He would go on to win the Pulitzer, the Drama Desk Award, and a Tony Award for Doubt. The same guy who'd written those fantastic stage and screenplays had also written this weird little fairy tale about a poor schlub jumping into a volcano. Full disclosure, it's fair to say that John Patrick's career has been pretty hit and miss. Although a winner of both an Oscar and the Pulitzer, he was also a Razzie Award nominee for Worst Screenplay in 1996. This nomination put a spotlight on his horrendous attempt at adapting the Michael Crichton novel Congo for the big screen. It wasn't just bad, it was awful. There's a How Did This Get Made episode about it. So even though he's sent some huge dingers sailing over the center field wall, John Patrick Shanley has also had some ugly strikeouts when it comes to the quality of his writing. Roger Ebert loved this movie. Some of that love may stem from the fact it was John Patrick Shanley who wrote it. Ebert said JVV was like nothing he'd ever seen before. He claimed it was completely fresh and rewrote the rules of movie making. Ebert claims it achieved a magnificent goofiness. Ebert's original Chicago Sun-Times review would include a rating of 3.5 out of 4 stars. In 2012, Ebert exhibited this film at Ebertfest. At that time, he wondered why he'd only given the movie 3.5 stars instead of a full 4. Ebert may have loved it, but he was at odds with several other notable reviewers. Vincent Canby said JVV was as much a thematic failure as Howard the Duck when it came to big-budget comedies. Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly called this movie a fiasco and gave it an F. He cuttingly said it was obvious Shanley had lucked out with Moonstruck. Ouch. Rotten Tomatoes shows an average critical rating of 6.2 out of 10, and Metacritic's weighted average score is a very middling 45 out of 100. Fifteen years after its release, Time critic Richard Schickel listed Joe vs. the Volcano as one of his guilty pleasures. He did admit in his review that some people regard this film as the worst big-budget film produced in modern times. With that much controversy about the quality of the film, I figured I'd better give it another look. Anything that generates that much argument usually has at least some substance. I figure I've also added another 35 years of living to my perspective. Trust me, most things don't look the same when you're 60 as they do when you're 25. Maybe this film would be one of those things. So I rewatched Joe vs. the Volcano, and I'm sorry, but it's still not bowling me over. It's enjoyable, and I certainly got more out of it this time around, but it was far from the jaw-dropping revelation I had hoped I'd missed. I even knew about a few things to be watching for, which made my second viewing somewhat more interesting. So I did enjoy my rewatch, and I did find some fun and interesting things about the production of JVV, but I still feel like it's a pretty lightweight fairy tale. The lightweight feel of it might be traced to the source of this story. In the IMDb trivia section about this movie is an entry that says it's based, quote, on a goofy short from 1952 called Hello, Aloha. I thought they were using the term goofy as a general adjective about the short. It's not. This is a Disney short starring capital G Goofy, the anthropomorphic dog who is good friends with Mickey Mouse and who also owns the non-anthropomorphic dog, Pluto. 
I watched Hello, Aloha. You can find it in its entirety several places on the web. It might be even weirder than this movie. For one thing, was the vocabulary of elementary school kids really this advanced in 1952? Ah, the big city with its teeming multitudes, its excitement, its robust existence. People engaged in the stimulating struggle for achievement. It's a cartoon, but there is nothing really funny about this six-and-a-half-minute short. It's full of angst and depression and general dissatisfaction with life. There are a couple of sight gags, but they are sandwiched between huge narrator monologues, which are decidedly adult. Get to work! And as time goes on, he feels a sense of satisfaction in keeping the wheels turning smoothly as each fruitful day follows the other. The story follows Goofy, playing the character of Mr. Geef as he is toiling away at his dead-end desk job. While looking at a wall calendar with a tropical scene, he dreams about going to Hawaii. Suddenly, he's there. Geef is treated like a king by the natives until he's taken to the lip of a volcano. Geef knew the friendly natives wouldn't throw him to the volcano, but they did. With zero ceremony whatsoever, Geef is tossed into the molten volcano. Geef's sacrifice, like Joe's, is intended to appease the fire gods and save the island. Also, just like Joe, and spoilers, remember? Goofy, or I mean Mr. Geef, is somehow saved from immolation. He pulls himself up over the lip of the volcano and waves to the camera in the final seconds before the credits. A quick comment about Hello Aloha... Goofy takes off his shoes when he gets to the beach. This era of Goofy has human feet. I found this image a bit weird and even disturbing. It didn't seem right at all. I checked, and I guess I was not alone in being weirded out by Goofy's human feet. Although Goofy's feet have been portrayed in very different ways over the years, they have evolved into more animal-like feet. I'd say the more recent versions of Goofy almost look like he has bare feet. As important as this movie would become regarding the team of Hanks Ryan, the pairing almost didn't happen. Meg Ryan was born Margaret Mary Emily Ann Hyra in Fairfield, Connecticut. Meg and I share a birthday, November 19th, but she's a couple years older, born in 1961. Her debut was in a 1981 movie called Rich and Famous. The 19-year-old was playing the character of Debbie at age 18. After that, she spent quite a bit of time on TV. She'd been in an ABC after-school special, a couple of episodes of Charles in Charge. She'd even done more than 30 episodes of daytime soap as the world turns. Her movie breakthrough had come the previous year opposite Billy Crystal in the very successful rom-com When Harry Met Sally. She'd been around just long enough to have some cred and experience, but she wasn't overexposed or tied to a certain role. The other hot young female lead making waves at the time was Julia Roberts. Julia also had a bit of TV in her resume, but she'd recently gotten some excellent notices for her work on the big screen. She was a lead in 1988's Mystic Pizza. She'd also collectively ripped our hearts out as Shelby in 1989's Steel Magnolias. Julia Roberts could easily have nailed this role, but when it came down to it, Julia was just not as girl next door as Meg. It was her cute smile, dancing eyes, and turned up nose, which eventually won Ms. Ryan the role. 
Meg was approaching her absolute peak of cuteness right about this time. Her dancing eyes and mischievous grin would serve her well for the next ten years. But don't worry about Julia Roberts. She would bounce back from this rejection by landing a part in another little movie from 1990 called Pretty Woman. Julia pulled off the hooker persona in a way cute little innocent Meg never could have. Pretty Woman would be the first of more than 20 movies Julia Roberts would make in just the 1990s. So what do you say, Refiner? You ready to hit play on Joe versus the Volcano? The first thing we see come up is the Warner Brothers logo, followed closely by an Amblin Entertainment production. Yep, this is Steven Spielberg's production company. It was Spielberg who read Shanley's script and liked it. Shanley says he was at a hotel in L.A. when Spielberg called him to say just how much he liked the script. Shanley recalls Spielberg saying he'd also heard Shanley wanted to direct. Spielberg thought that would also be great. Oddly, Shanley later said in interviews he'd never mentioned wanting to direct. He'd never directed anything and really didn't know how. But I guess you don't argue with Steven Spielberg, especially when he's offering you a job. Shanley agreed that directing his own script would be great. The screen dissolves to a fairy tale script font. It says, once upon a time, there was a guy named Joe, Dissolve, who had a very lousy job. As far as severance inspiration goes, this definitely tracks. There's another Dissolve to a close-up of a mud hole as a car is parking next to it. We're looking at a muddy, trice-strewn parking lot. A leg wearing a dress shoe, black socks, and suit pants emerges from the car. The dress shoe is immediately submerged in the mud hole. We tilt up to reveal Tom Hanks looking defeated. Tom Hanks is an American actor born July of 1956 in Concord, California. He has 97 actors, 61 producer, and 7 writer credits on his IMDb profile. Tom started acting in 1980 and hasn't stopped yet. He is the boomer version of Jimmy Stewart. If you don't know the name or general career of Tom Hanks, you seriously need to expand your movie-watching horizons. A large group of equally defeated workers is shuffling towards big revolving gates. Unlike the Lumen parking lot, here we are seeing everyone as they make their way into the office. Tom Hanks, as Joe Banks, passes a sign telling us this is American Panoscope, a subsidiary of ACHI. According to the sign, we are in Long Island City, New York. More signs tell us American Panoscope is devoted to presenting a new generation of surgical tools. We also discover that AP is home of the rectal probe. And hey, if you're going to produce a rectal probe, you'd probably better make the support products as well. This would explain the 50 years of petroleum jelly sign Joe also passes. Look closely at the triangles in the American Panoscope logo. There's a crooked lightning bolt design in each triangle. This lightning bolt is going to take on some extensive symbolism throughout the movie. We will run into it several times. When we do, we can talk more about what it means. In a close-up of Joe's foot, we see him catch his shoe on the threshold of the revolving door. It rips the sole off from the toe back. This is where the movie starts referencing souls, both the S-O-L-E and S-O-U-L kind. Although, all of these references are really about the S-O-U-L kind. Are you checking some of the credits dissolving on and off the screen? We're seeing Lloyd Bridges, Robert Stack, Abe Vigoda. These are some huge and recognizable names from the era. The song that's playing is Eric Burden's version of the folk standard 16 tons. Slow 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Send me 
Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store It's one of the most depressing work-related songs ever written. It's a song about coal miners with lyrics that reference owing your soul to the company store. The topic of souls is very prevalent throughout this movie. After Joe passes through the revolving gates, he's rudely pushed from behind by an impatient co-worker. Joe then steps in another mud hole, this one even deeper than the one from the parking lot. The camera cranes up over Joe as we're looking straight down at Mr. Banks. He stretches his arms out, pleading with the heavens. Tim Robbins as Andy Dufresne will quite famously reprise this pose in 1994's Shawshank Redemption. It will be raining when he does it, but the move is the same. The crane shot reverses to show us an overhead view of the pathway each of these Panoscope employees is traversing. It's the same crooked lightning bolt as we saw in the Panoscope logo. Here, this crooked random pathway represents the crooked path most people's lives take when it comes to things like career and family. There's even a close-up of a lighted version of the lightning bolt in the triangle mounted on the facade of the American Panoscope building. This is a real building located in Los Angeles. The crooked trail was added to the site. The smokestacks were matted in during post. This movie was made pre-CGI. Any special effects were either miniatures, mats, or very basic film manipulation. As the trudging parade continues, there's a cut to a very low-angle view of a flower. It's a daisy growing up from between the squares of concrete. Shoes pass by and probably missing the small flower. Then finally, a woman's shoe comes down directly on the poor daisy. It disappears. We even hear a bit of a crunch. This is an artsy movie. This somewhat heavy-handed little vignette is telling us there is no hope for beauty or life in this place. Anything of beauty that dares to show itself will be crushed under the heel of capitalism. Huge sliding doors open, splitting an enormous version of the AP logo and its crooked lightning bolt design. The shot cuts to a large wall with a huge sign that says, Home of the Rectal Probe. Just like McDonald's used to do, there's a counter on the sign. It's claiming 712,765 satisfied rectal probe customers. The large graphic above the counter might even be an artist's rendition of the rectal probe. This one item seems to be a big moneymaker for American Panoscope. The shot pulls back. We're in a huge warehouse seemingly stacked with boxes and boxes of rectal probes. I did not know there was such a demand for these things. Joe Banks is an executive working in the advertising department. I'm not sure why executives pass through the factory floor on the way to their offices, but that's what seems to be happening. We see petroleum jelly being shot into five-gallon buckets. Joe walks right behind the burly guy who's handling the petroleum jelly packaging, and it's a little gross. The trudge through the factory has led to the time card wall. The song is almost over, and the credits read written and directed by John Patrick Shanley. Time to start the show. Joe pushes through a pair of battered and abused swinging doors. The sign on the left-hand door says, Advertising Department. The lighting in the advertising department is horrible. There's a sickly green pallor over everything. We can see a young lady seated behind a big gray IBM typewriter. There's a desk against the back wall. Seated at it is Joe's boss, Mr. Waturi. Not sure if this name means anything in particular. The only reference I was able to find to it is in Pythagorean numerology, where Waturi has the numerical value of two. 
At the Universal Theme Park in Orlando, the fictional tribe of people who live at Volcano Bay are called the Waturi. It's an interesting coincidence, but since Volcano Bay didn't go online until 2017, I kind of doubt there's a connection. Mr. Waturi is being played by American actor Dan Hedaya. Hedaya was born in Brooklyn in July of 1940. Before getting into acting, he worked as a junior high teacher for several years. Dan has 142 acting credits dating back to 1976 when he did a 10-episode turn on afternoon soap, Ryan's Hope. Although Dan is usually playing a villain or some other unlikable character, one of his most recognizable roles was comic. Well, to be fair, it was an unlikable character, but also comic. Dan played Carla's ex-husband, Nick Tortelli, on Cheers. He even turned the role into a 1987 spin-off sitcom called The Tortellis. Hedaya's most recent listings are two movie appearances in 2021. After those, he may have finally retired at age 81. Waturi is loudly embroiled in a circular conversation on the phone. I know he can get the job. But can he do the job? He continues to not argue with whoever is on the other end of the line. I'm not arguing that with you. I'm not arguing that with you, Harry! His continued repetition made me a little nuts. I think it was intended to be funny, but for me it was just irritating. But can he do the job? Meanwhile, Joe's trying to hang his coat on a very broken coat rack. The coffee is disgusting and the creamer is non-dairy powder. It won't even mix into the clammy-looking coffee. Giant fluorescent tubes are buzzing in the ceiling. Many of the lights are flickering. This is a hellscape of an office. As Joe passes back by Waturi's desk, we cut to a close-up as Waturi places a couple of semi-opaque glass orbs on a stand. A pan down reveals a plaque telling us these twin balls are actually balls. The plaque says these are artificial testicles prototype. Next to Joe's desk is a large red fire standpipe. It has an enormous valve with a round red shutoff handle and a yellow sign that says, Do not touch. Before Joe has a seat at his desk, he pounds on the buzzing fluorescent light directly above his head. At first, it starts to buzz louder, then it shuts off completely. You might be thinking, Oh, come on, this is too over the top. No one would really work in a place like this. Actually, this office is based on a real company where Shanley worked when he was 18. Sure, it might be amped up a bit as filtered through the memory of an 18-year-old, but Shanley claims he's not exaggerating by much. He worked at a medical supply company which dealt in catheters, endoscopes, and yes, even artificial testicles. Shanley worked under buzzing fluorescence in a space with a standpipe bearing a sign that said, Do not touch. Before he has a seat, Joe reaches into the top drawer of his file cabinet. He pulls out a gaudy lamp with fringe around the shade. As he's retrieving the lamp, we need to talk for a minute about this thing on Tom Hanks' head. Now that he's taken off his hat, we can see that Joe is sporting a massive mullet. This isn't just a mullet, it's a mullet with a blowout. He's going to get it cut into a more Hanksian form about 40 minutes into the movie. Until then, we have to put up with this furry pet attacking Tom's neck. Joe plugs in the gaudy lamp and has a seat at his desk. When he turns it on, make sure to check the graphics on the spinning shade. You'll see the island, the boat, the natives. It's an entire preview of the rest of the movie. The lamp is also playing a little tune, like a music box. This is an original composition for the movie. It's called Joe's Lullaby, a.k.a. the lamp theme. 
This bit of music was inspired by the tune La Ronde de l'Amour, or Love's Roundabout, written by Louis de Croo and Oscar Strauss. A warning, there is a downside to looking closely at the lampshade. You will also see the mismatched cuts. The scene on the lampshade jumps around each time they cut to a different shot. As Joe is pulling off his damaged shoe, the girl from the typewriter approaches his desk. Oh, good morning, Dee Dee. Hi, Joe. This is Dee Dee. She's the office manager slash secretary here in the American Panoscope Advertising Department. Surprise, surprise, Dee Dee is being played by Meg Ryan. The dark wig, brown contacts, and heavy makeup change her appearance considerably. She's also putting on quite a character as the mousy Dee Dee. This is one of three different and very distinct characters played by Meg Ryan in this movie. Mr. Shanley's theater roots are showing here. Performers playing multiple characters is very common in live theater. The guy who answered the door as a butler in the first scene might also be a cabbie in the third act. Here, Meg is playing three different and distinct women who pass through Joe's life on his journey to the volcano. What's with the shoe? Joe has taken off his damaged dress shoe. He's holding it at his desk, looking at the peeled back toe. I'm losing my soul. Yeah. Ah, the subtle wordplay of a Pulitzer winner. Dee Dee makes a little small talk, asking Joe how he's doing. feel kind of tired. Dee Dee appears frail. She also has the sniffles. It might be from working in this dank office. Dee Dee hands Joe the address label she'd been working on at her typewriter. Yeah, each one gets sent five catalogs. Joe has some bad news. I only got 12 catalogs left altogether. Dee Dee says okay and turns to head out of Joe's office. Off camera, we can hear the voice of Mr. Waturi. I'll take care of this. Yes, Mr. Oh yeah, he'll take care of it. Waturi asks Joe how he's doing. Joe tells him not good. This isn't news to Waturi. So what else is new? You never feel good. Joe mentions a doctor's appointment later that day. Waturi's real concern is with this supply of catalog. How did you let us get down to 12? Joe told him. He mentioned it three weeks ago, then two weeks ago. Did you tell me last week? Oops, no, he did not. Not good enough, Joe. Not nearly good enough. Waturi just knew this catalog thing had to be Joe's fault. We get a wide down-angle shot of Joe's desk and the office. Waturi throws his arms wide. I put you in charge of the entire advertising library. Now you mean this room. In this wider shot, we can see a few more details. The library is two metal shelving units. There's a naked, vaguely medical-looking mannequin along the wall frame left. Next to it is a gross-looking cardboard drum. Then the standpipe, only now we can see a white sign hanging on the large valve handle. It says main drain. This next bit is wordy. This is a trait of a playwright writing for the movies. There's a lot of talk. We find out it's Waturi who's supposed to call the printer to order the catalogs, not Joe. Joe doesn't feel good, but Waturi is just not sympathetic. So what? You think I feel good? Nobody feels good. After childhood, it's a fact of life. Waturi tells Joe he could be assistant manager if he'd be more flexible. And Waturi wants that lamp off Joe's desk. The fluorescents uh, affect me. They make me feel blotchy, puffy. I thought this light would. Get rid of the light. Waturi is not moved by Joe's pleas to keep the lamp. And take that light off the desk. I will. Do it now. Joe, cowering, turns off the lamp and sets it on the floor by his desk. Good. With all possible hope firmly extinguished, Waturi stalks out of the room. Dee Dee comes right back in. She must have been listening at the door. Why you let Waturi talk to you like that? Like what? Joe doesn't know. He just doesn't feel good. 
Joe grinds the heels of his hands into his eyes. As he does, the sound changes and we hear a new voice. Mr. Banks. Cut to Joe, still seated, still with his hands over his face. Only now he's sitting in a doctor's office. He must have ignored Waturi and gone to his appointment. Dr. Ellison will see you now. The nurse is being played by American actress Jane Haynes. Jane's career has been relaxed. Prior to this, she'd had two small movie roles and done an episode of Miami Vice. Jane will go on to spread 16 total acting credits out over 25 years or so. When we cut to the long shot over the nurse's shoulder, take a good look at this waiting room. Even though the chairs might be more comfortable, it's not nearly as pleasant as the wellness waiting room, is it, refiners? This is a nasty visual joke that no longer works because the Clean Air Act bans smoking in public places. If you look closely in this waiting room, you can see in the corners and by the doors are metal cylinders. The ones back in the corner are a lot bigger. All four of these are ashtrays. This style had a large round tray in the top that would be filled with white silica sand. A smoker could snuff a butt out in the sand if they had to give up on a still burning cigarette. Like, you know, when they got called into the doctor's office. Look at the yellow stains in the corners of the room. Those are tar and nicotine stains from hundreds of cigarettes smoldering and burning out in those ashtrays. Yuck. Joe pauses, unsure where to go. He points to one of the two doors in the room. Now, if he came in the other door... Oh, I get it. It's a joke. After a moment of disbelief, the nurse nods. Joe opens the door to reveal Robert Stack seated at a large desk in an office that looks like they stole a set from Marcus Welby, M.D. How are you feeling, Mr. Banks? Anyone who is a fan of the original Unsolved Mysteries from 1987 will know this voice immediately. Robert Stack hosted for 295 episodes over the 23-year run of the original series. Although probably most famous as a host, Stack was also an actor in more than 100 projects. His best-known role would be his portrayal of real-life special agent Elliot Ness on 119 episodes of the 1959 TV series The Untouchables. Stack's movie credits date back to 1939. He easily made the transition to TV, appearing on some of the earliest TV shows ever produced, like Lux Video Theater and Pulitzer Prize Playhouse. Born Charles Langford Modini Stack in January of 1919, Robert Stack would pass away at his Bel Air home in May of 2003 at the age of 84. Joe has his seat. As for how he feels, nothing's changed. <clears throat> Pretty much the same. I feel puffy, blotchy. I never seem to have very much energy. No energy, sore throats. And how long have you felt this way? Here we get a new detail about Joe. He says he's felt this way ever since he left the fire department. In about eight years. So the guy who's going to jump into a fiery volcano used to put out fires? Hmm, very poetic, Mr. Shanley. His whole life, Joe's been searching for a way to quench this burning fire in his soul, or something like that. Joe tells Ellison, yeah, sure, he used to put out fires, but he says he came out of it okay. It was because he wasn't feeling good that he eventually had to quit. I've gotten the results of your tests. Joe is a hypochondriac. He's imagining all of these maladies. Not feeling good is the way he responds to his life. There isn't any underlying physical thing wrong with Joe. This is just Joe. The fact the doctor has actual test results is kind of surprising. I've got cancer. He's ready for every sniffle to be the end. No, 
Okay, so he's avoided the big C. Something wrong with my blood or my urine. Dr. Ellison again tells him, no, they're fine. But there is something. Joe steals himself. He wants the doc to tell him. You have a brain cloud. A what now? Brain cloud? Ah, if only Google or WebMD had been around back in 1990. Other than mentions about this movie, there is absolutely no malady called a brain cloud I could find anywhere. I did find a few supplements promising to alleviate brain fog, but nothing about a cloud. In reality, I think Joe is dealing with some major depression issues. Unfortunately, this was prior to the era of open discussions about and available treatments for mental health issues. Dr. Ellison doesn't just have a diagnosis, he also has an explanation. There's a black fog of tissue running right down the center of your brain. It's very rare. So rare, they've never heard of it at the Mayo Clinic website. According to Ellison, this fog is going to spread, and it is very destructive. And it's incurable. Yes. Wow. Joe walks over by the fireplace. Doc has a very nice office. How long? He's got six months. The good news? It's not painful. Well, sure, made-up maladies usually aren't. Your brain will simply fail, followed abruptly by your body. Between now and then, Joe should be able to expect five months or so of perfect health. Wait, what are you talking about, doctor? I don't feel good right now. This is the irony, according to Ellison. There's nothing wrong with you that has anything to do with your symptoms. The doc has accurately identified him as a hypochondriac. He should feel perfectly fine. Everything he's experiencing right now is all in his head. What he will experience in five to six months is the real deal, and it's definitely going to kill him. But until then, none of what he's feeling now is real, and he should get out there and enjoy the six months he has left. Ellison then does a little head shrinking. He tells Joe what he's experiencing now is most likely a response to facing death numerous times as a firefighter. None of it is real. I'm not sick except for this terminal disease. A terminal disease with no symptoms, which is almost entirely undetectable. Ellison claims it was Joe's insistence on having so many tests that even allowed them to identify the brain cloud. As Joe is leaning against the fireplace mantel, look frame right. Sitting on the mantel is a ceramic duck. Ducks are a symbol that appear frequently throughout this movie. There is a theory as to the meaning behind these ducks. Since we're dealing with Mr. Wordsmith Shanley, I tend to buy into these duck explanations. The French word for duck is canard. In English, a canard is a false or baseless rumor. A canard is a hoax. The whole brain cloud and trip to Waponi Woo is a canard. Having a duck here in Ellison's office establishes the canard reference, but it also invites the description of quack to describe Ellison as a doctor. I'll point out more duck imagery as we get to it. Joe asks Ellison what he should do. Well, if you have any savings, you might think about taking a trip. A vacation. That's great, but Joe doesn't have any savings. He spent it all on these tests and doctor visits. Bluffing a bit, Ellison invites Joe to get a second opinion. Joe doesn't even consider the possibility. For one thing, he's broke and couldn't afford to go to another doctor. But also, this diagnosis validates how he's been feeling. He says he knew it. Well, I, I didn't know it, but I knew it. He buys into this idea of the brain cloud because it was important that he find something wrong. Otherwise, if there's no diagnosis, no illness of any kind, it means he's just nuts. 
There's no way he could have been imagining all of these problems. He ignores the fact the brain cloud has no symptoms. Maybe he's just more sensitive to it than most people. This has to be the source of why he feels the way he does. Joe has his seat and again asks the doc what he's going to do. Ellison picks up a small glass orb. It's a little bigger than an artificial testicle. The doc considers it in the light as he continues to talk to Joe. He looks like a Bond villain as he's contemplating the orb. You have some time left, Mr. Banks. You have some life left. My advice to you is live it well. The song begins. This is Ray Charles' version of Old Man River. This tune was originally written for the 1927 musical Showboat. Music by Jerome Kern, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. Ray's version never charted as a single, but four different versions of this song all went top ten in 1928. We cut to outside the doctor's office. Old Man River continues to underscore the scene. As we see Joe's feet descending the stairs, the camera pans down the exterior of the building. While panning down, the number 941 fills the screen. It's huge, dead center. You can't miss it. It's the address of the doc's office. Usually when a director does something like this, there's a reason. This feels just like the huge 139 on the sale of Truman's boat. I wanted to know why this number was being pushed in our faces so prominently. I think I may have found an answer. 941 is what's called an angel number. Believers in angel numbers say they will appear at random times throughout our lives. They may appear as addresses, phone numbers, license plates, even street signs. Angel number fans say they are subtle little messages being given to us by our guardian angels. If you're aware of them and can decipher them, angel numbers are supposed to be able to direct and enhance your spiritual journey. This suddenly got very interesting. I discovered the angel number 941 is linked to strong and solid new beginnings, positive change, and spiritual growth. If you see this number, especially at an important turning point in your life, it's telling you to, quote, take a leap of faith and trust that you are on the right path. I'm not paraphrasing. This is exactly the description I found for this number. Here, it is appearing in front of Joe at a momentous point in his life. He doesn't know it yet, but he's going to walk a crooked path in order to take a leap of faith into a volcano. If Shanley is using this number intentionally, then bravo, John Patrick. If he did not do this on purpose, then I'm starting to believe a lot more in angel numbers right now. The sign on the door where Joe is exiting says, Medical League Building, Long Island City Branch. Old Man River continues. When he gets on the street, Joe meets a woman walking her Great Dane. He hugs the dog, then inappropriately hugs the woman. There's a story that goes along with this shot from outside Ellison's office. After Shanley completed his primary shooting, the only major problem Steven Spielberg had with everything was this shot. Shanley only got the one long, single, unbroken take from across the street. There was no other coverage on the scene. Spielberg actually sent Shanley back to the location to shoot additional angles and close-ups so they had more coverage. Once it was all in the can, Spielberg decided Shanley was right. 
the additional angles were tossed in favor of keeping this one shot. A quick origins aside here, I love seeing the connections and commonality between certain scenes in these origins movies. Here we find Joe re-entering the world after being told he's going to die. This scene mirrors others we've seen in our origins breakdowns. Joe's looking at the world in a whole new light. It's the same way Neo looked at the Matrix, Truman looked at Seahaven, and Peter looked at Inatech after they'd all had their in-movie revelations. I'm glad they stayed with this long one-shot. Joe's tiny car next to that enormous brick wall, even meeting a woman while she's walking her dog, all has a Brazil flavor to it. There's a deeply shared DNA to all of these movies. Back at American Panoscope, we're seeing the crushed daisy from this morning. Joe's about to step on it again when he pauses. Suddenly, Joe has a newfound respect for life. He kneels to stand the daisy up and spread out its petals. The Old Man River montage ends with Joe at the advertising department double doors. When he enters, Watori is back on his phone, arguing as usual. No! You were wrong. He was wrong! Joe takes off his fedora and starts to hang it on the coat rack. When he remembers how broken the coat rack is, Joe instead grabs Dee Dee's wastebasket. He forcefully throws his fedora in the trash. This is more symbolism from director Shanley. The personality changes Joe goes through in this movie are delineated by hats. Be watching. Each time Joe makes a major life change, he's gonna throw away the hat he's currently wearing. Joe just made a major life decision upon entering the advertising department. We get a couple of reaction shots around the office. I didn't mention him earlier, but there is also a clerk here with Didi and Watori. He's being played by Tony Salome. Tony's an American actor and entertainment industry professional. Tony has a dozen acting credits, but Tony's true career has been in location management. He's got 25 location management credits on his IMDb profile. Those include 85 episodes of NCIS Los Angeles, 36 episodes of 24, and movies like Tremors. Tony doesn't say anything here, but his sallow greenish complexion does give the place a creepy vibe. Waturi continues what must be an ad-libbed phone conversation. It's as circular and annoying as the one from this morning. Joe, meanwhile, is working his way around the office, causing a distraction. He baits the clerk, then fights with a prosthetic arm. Didi is looking at him like he's a madman. You are lunch three hours. Joe is now arm wrestling with the prosthetic. He walks over to Waturi's desk, carrying the arm. Joe pats Waturi on the head with the fake hand. Waturi, angered, grabs the arm away from him. Joe goes on into the advertising library. Waturi follows, now gesturing at Joe with the arm. Joe heads right over to the main drain and turns the valve. He says he's opening or, or closing the main drain. Shouldn't be touching it, Joe. If this valve follows the real-world rules of righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, then Joe closed the valve. I don't know what he was expecting, but Joe is visibly disappointed when nothing happens. You know how long I've been wondering what happened if I did that? But Terry asks him what's wrong. Joe quickly says brain cloud, but then decides not to explain. He calls Waturi Frank. I quit. Waturi wants to know if he means today. Yep, he sure does. You can tell Waturi is hurt, but he decides to lash out. Don't come looking for a reference for me. This doesn't bother Joe in the least when you only have six months to live. A new job is not on your radar. 
Joe goes through his desk. For some reason, he has copies of classic literature here at the office. The famous novels he shows Watori all contain elements of the plot of the rest of the movie. He pulls out a copy of Classics Illustrated. Robinson Crusoe. Crusoe is a man who famously spends a lot of time on an island and would be the blueprint for the character Hanks plays later in Castaway. He then pulls out Romeo and Juliet. Spoilers for R&J. It's the classic romantic love story, but these two crazy kids both wind up dead after a heartbreaking mix-up, which includes false information about their health. And finally, Joe pulls out The Odyssey. Waturi doesn't care about any of this. You blew this job! Oh, and spoilers for the Odyssey, Odysseus has a crazy journey where he is enslaved, experiences ocean-going storms, and at one point winds up on an island. After going through the book titles, he also produces... Ukulele. Well, sure, it's the ultimate island instrument. Joe says he's been working here four and a half years, but any work he's actually done could have been accomplished in six months. Those other four years were wasted. He begins to lament if only he could have those years back now. Like gold in my hand. Joe places his gaudy lamp on Dee Dee's desk. He's making it a gift to her. You going? Oh, yes he is, and in a blaze of glory. What Tori says, if Joe's leaving, he should leave. And I promise you, you'll be easy to replace. Joe pauses at the door. Under his breath, he mutters he should say something. For about the next three minutes, Joe is going to do his $300 a week monologue. This scene is good, but it feels very writerly. It's a scene you'd find in a play slipped into this movie. Joe goes on a great classic rant. He rails against the fluorescent lights, the coffee, what Turi himself, who he says must be dead. He laments how he's never approached the lovely Didi. The whole thing gets very emotional. At one point, Joe throws Waturi up against the wall. You are lucky I don't kill you! You're lucky I don't lift your freaking throwback! He says he should, but he's not going to. Tom's doing a great job with this speech, but wow, it is a lot. It's the fantasy most people have but never act on when quitting a job. Oh, and that uh, $300 a week Joe mentions would translate to about $700 in buying power in 2024. This means Joe's working the equivalent of a current-day $36,000 a year job here in the American Panoscope Advertising Department. Joe storms out of the office. We take a couple of beats looking at the dirty gray advertising department doors. Joe then comes back into the office. Dee Dee. Yeah. How about dinner tonight? Yeah, okay. Joe again retreats through the swinging double doors. Dee Dee's face slowly breaks into a huge, squinty-eyed smile. Wow, what a change. Meg is so cute, but ugh, what are those things on the shelf behind her? We cut to dinner. Joe is still as fired up as he was that afternoon. He's ranting about the secret of the universe, embracing the universe. The door to the universe is you. Me? You? Me? Dee Dee is blown away by Joe's newfound intensity. Joe says he was, intense that is, back in the beginning. He said nothing got him down. He wanted to know everything, but then he got scared. He asked Dee Dee if she's ever been scared. She twirls her hair as she answers. I guess so, sure. This gets Joe's attention. He wants to know what scared her. A lot of things. At the moment, you scared me a little bit. Me? <laughs> yeah. Dee Dee says there's definitely something going on with him. This morning, he was like a lump. Now he's, well, he's a little nuts. She asks how he feels. I feel great. This is a shocker for Dee Dee. Joe never feels great. Joe realizes it, too. He's never felt this good before. 
Didi pauses and asks with some wonder where Joe is. He claims he's right there, but she can tell he really isn't. I wish I was where you are, Joe. Joe gets a bit quiet before he says something weirdly prophetic. Did I ever tell you that the first time that I saw you, I felt like I had seen you before? We don't know about before, but he is going to see her again, two more times in fact. Meg plays two more women who will both have a big influence on Joe's journey. Dee Dee doesn't say anything. She just shakes her head back and forth as Joe is nodding. Off camera, we can hear the strum of a flamenco guitar. Wait a minute. Joe leaves the table to approach the unseen band. When he returns, he says he bribed them. I heard it was a full five bucks. He doesn't just want a song. He wants them... To sing us a song that would drive us insane and make our hearts swell and burst. Wow, that is a tall order for five bucks. The strolling group makes their way over to the table. We get a reverse angle showing the band as they play. The song they've chosen for maximum heart bursting is On the Street Where You Live from the 1956 hit Lerner and Lowe Broadway musical My Fair Lady. This tune has been recorded dozens of times over the years. The most successful commercial version was Vic Damone's 1956 release. It would peak at number four on the Billboard Top Hits chart. I have often walked on the street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before, all at once am I several stories high, knowing I'm on the street where you live. The version being performed here is entirely in Spanish. The band is being played by Wally Ruiz, Guillermo Guzman, and Tommy Franco. All three of these guys have a single credit on their IMDb profile, this movie as Spanish singers. I could find no other connection to show business for any of these guys. I was even hoping for maybe a sibling connection. James Franco has a brother named Tom, but it's a different Tommy Franco. Luis Guzman doesn't have any siblings I could find, so maybe Guillermo's a cousin. Although I think Guillermo may have gone another way with his profession. An alternate name listed on Guillermo's profile is Guillermo Guzman, M.D. Joe smiles as the music plays. Didi looks self-conscious at first, but eventually breaks down in an adorable grin. Chemistry when it comes to on-screen couples is sometimes a hard thing to define. I've read a few retro reviews of this movie saying Tom and Meg had not yet fully developed the on-screen chemistry they would be so famous for later in the decade. I disagree. This feels natural and organic. Even with the wordy speeches and overblown imagery of the script, you still sense genuine affection. There's a spark between these two that is undeniable. As the music continues, Joe tentatively reaches across the table. We get a close-up of Dee Dee slowly placing her closed fist in Joe's outstretched hand. There's a cut to a wide, down-angle exterior shot of the corner where the restaurant is located. They've been dining at the Spanish Rose. I could not find a location for this restaurant, but wow, doesn't it look like something out of a movie from the 1940s? Although Spanish, it has a definite Polynesian flair. A sailor in movie-perfect sailor garb is leaning against a light pole as the couple exits. This might even be an in-studio set. The pools of light on the street have the crisp edges of a focused spotlight. 
Check the mural on the restaurant wall, frame left. An islander is stabbing something with a spear in the foreground and a volcano is erupting in the background. The stylized font to the right of the volcano says fire in paradise in large letters. Then under it smaller is the word technicolor. This is trying to look like a movie poster. I could not find a single reference to a movie from the 40s or 50s with this title. I did find a 2019 release called Fire in Paradise. It's about a wildfire threatening to engulf the town of Paradise, California. It has a pretty high critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, and it streams on Netflix if you want to check it out. Joe awkwardly twirls Dee Dee under one of the lights. Cut to a very cool shot, which is supposed to be on the Staten Island Ferry. We later learn that Joe lives in Staten Island. The skyline of Manhattan can be seen in the distance, but it has these crazy colored lights in all of the windows. City skylines normally feature white lights in the windows. These are orange, green, aqua. How did they get this crazy skyline? Well, it's a soundstage. They've blown in a lot of fog for texture. The water is made up of plastic garbage bags with a fan blowing over them. The moon's a spotlight and the skyline is a simple backdrop. For the few seconds it's on screen, it certainly works. I'm also interpreting the weird colors as Joe's new wide awake take on life. Everything is so vibrant and intense. This skyline is how Joe's now seeing the world. The tilt down on Joe's apartment building is also a pretty obvious soundstage. Again, the lights in the windows are multicolored. This segment of street looks like the curtain has gone up on a big-budget theatrical staging of West Side Story. As soon as they are in his apartment, Dee Dee is all over Joe. What happened to you? Huh? What happened to you that you're, you're so alive? I can see it. She's kissing him and pulling his coat off when he says, the doctor told him there's something wrong with his brain. I've got just five or six months to live. Dee Dee is writhing against him, not really listening to what he's saying. It takes a few seconds before it hits her. What? I'm going to die. Dee Dee pushes him away. Suddenly, the fire is gone. She's creeped out by this revelation. Uh, I gotta go. Joe really wants her to stay. Just stay, just tonight. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Uh. In his review, Roger Ebert said the dialogue in this movie is actually worth listening to because it is written with wit and romance. I would have to agree. Yes, it's a crazy premise, but you don't get lines like these in your average rom-com. They do elevate the material, at least until we get to the island. Even with his J.P. Shanley-supplied words worth listening to, Joe can't convince Dee Dee. She's torn. She wants to, but ultimately, sleeping with a soon-to-be dead man is just too creepy. I can't handle it, Joe. Random observation as Dee Dee departs, the light in the corner of Joe's entryway is shaped like a volcano. Joe slowly takes off his tie, trying to figure out what just happened. We cut to Joe at the breakfast table. It's the next morning. The newly free Joe is plinking around on the ukulele. Voices can be heard outside his window. The apartment buzzer sounds. At first, Joe ignores it. Whoever's there starts to knock along with the buzzer. Joe, still in his bathrobe, gets up to answer it. He dramatically pulls apart the metal blinds on his front door to reveal the slightly maniacal face of Lloyd Bridges. He's wearing a gray felt fedora. His hair gives him the look of a demented leprechaun. Joe Banks? Mr. Joe Banks? 
Yeah. He raises the head of his cane up by his face. Check it out, refiners. The head of his cane is another duck. This is a definite canard. Joe lets in the as-yet-unidentified man. He comments on the fact Joe isn't dressed yet. Doesn't bother me, it doesn't bother you. He walks into the area of Joe's apartment that must be his living room. Not a nice place you have here, Joe. Check the design in the wall frame right. It's the same crooked path as the one in the American Paniscope logo and the path Joe takes every morning to work. We still don't know who he is, but this bizarre visitor starts to cut down Joe's apartment. Dingy! He uses the head of his duck cane to smash a hole in the wall above Joe's console TV. Dismal. Shabby. Dinky! He then stands his cane up behind a couch cushion and hangs his hat on it. He turns to Joe, telling him he sees it as a sign of sophistication that he has not yet asked for his visitor's name or even wondered what he's doing here. The visitor extends a hand. My name is Samuel Harvey Graynamore. Joe Banks. Oh, I know. Graynamore is very aware of Mr. Banks. He says he's trying to see the hero in there. Joe doesn't know what he's talking about. You dragged two kids down a six-story burning staircase. Now, that was brave. But then you went back up for the third kid. That was heroic. This must be a story from Joe's firefighting days. He even says it was a long time ago. Come on now, you're a hero! Graynamore is being played by legendary film and television actor Lloyd Bridges. Looking at his IMDb bio, his career has been a lot more TV than movies. I had no idea how many series and TV movies Lloyd Bridges had done. He has a total of 217 actor credits on his profile. His career dates back to 1935 with a slew of uncredited movie roles for about the first 10 years. He became a household name as Mike Nelson on Sea Hunt for 155 episodes from 1958 through 61. Although he did a lot of drama and action-adventure, Bridges could also bring the funny. He looks here a lot like his Steve McCroskey character from the 1980 classic Airplane. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. He was also hilarious as the patriarch of the fictional Mandelbaum family on two episodes of Seinfeld. In real life, Lloyd was the patriarch of the Bridges performing family. Two of his three children are Bo and Jeff Bridges. Yes, Lloyd Bridges is father to the dude Lebowski. Grainamore knows an awful lot about Joe. Quit your job, huh? Yeah. Eh, sounds like a dumb job. He confirms Joe has no family, but he's fine with that. Families are a pain in the neck. Kind of funny, considering we're going to be meeting Grainamore's family in just a little bit. He pulls a carved scrimshaw pipe out of his pocket and approaches Joe. What do you know about superconductors? Nothing. Superconductors are a real thing, but trust me, you don't need to know anything about superconductors in order to get this movie. Neither Joe nor Grainamore knows anything about them. The only reason Grainamore brings it up is because he claims to own a company that is the world leader in superconductor manufacturing. Grainamore directs Joe to a seat in Joe's living room. He mentions Dr. Ellison, how Joe had seen him yesterday. He told me a news. Wow, this is definitely before HIPAA regulations. Lloyd Bridges looks to be out of his mind with the hair and some of his facial expressions. Would you allow this guy into your apartment? He thought that uh, you and I might be able to help each other. He then glances around and asks if Joe has any whiskey. Nope. Whiskey? It's morning. Joe's still in his bathrobe. Bridges is killing me. He's a riot. He says he wants to hire Joe. He has his pipe all loaded and strikes a match. 
Wanna hire to jump into a volcano. The eyes, the hair, the flame on the match. He's got to be crazy. When Grainamore lights the pipe, we get a better look at it. It's a topless mermaid, her white carved breast pointed right at the camera. Joe's response is perfect. You know, I do have some whiskey. Jump cut to Grainamore now slugging down a shot and puffing on his pipe. There's an island in the South Pacific called Waponi Woo. Waponi Woo? What does that mean? The name means a little island with a big volcano. Grainamore says the Waponis are a simple but cheerful people. There's only one thing that bothers a Waponi. One fear is that big volcano. They call it the Big Woo. Lloyd Bridges is killing it in this part. He's spouting incredible nonsense, but he makes it sound so believable. They believe that an angry fire god in the volcano will sink the island. Unless once every hundred years, he is appeased. Now, if they'd thrown somebody in 70 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation. As you probably guessed, long before he said it, dear refiner, it's time for the big woo to get his sacrifice. It's been 99 years, 11 months, and 11 days since the fire god got his propers, and the Waponis are scared. To be a somewhat uncivilized group, the Waponi are amazingly accurate with their dates and using the Gregorian calendar, no less. Joe somewhat naively asks how their god is appeased. Didn't he hear Grainamore say the bit about jumping in the volcano? He repeats it. Of his own free will, a man's got to jump into the volcano. Grainamore says this time around, none of the Waponies is all that excited about having the honor of jumping into the big woo. We're going to discover that the Waponies aren't entirely free of Western influence. They've become particularly fond of orange soda. Some believe it is this love of orange soda which is keeping anyone from volunteering. So what do you do? What do you do? Grainamore says it's time to do some trading. Ever hear of Boobaroo? Don't feel bad. No one has. It was made up for the movie. According to the closed captioning, Boobaroo is spelled B-U-B-U-R-E-A-U. Grainamore claims he needs Boobaroo for his superconductors, but it is so rare he's never found more than a gram of it anywhere in the world. Waponi Woo, of course, is lousy with Boobaroo. I tried to get the mineral rice from the Waponis, but I don't seem to have anything they want. I had a flash here in the Grainamore scenes. This felt a little like the scene where Tim Curry, also playing a crazed millionaire, approaches the Congo crew about financing their expedition. They're going for diamonds, but the rest is very similar. A huge company needs the valuable item to make a lot of money. A wealthy but eccentric businessman comes out of nowhere to fund the jungle excursion. It had much the same feel to me than I remembered. It was Shanley who also wrote Congo. He likes to use the wealthy benefactor MacGuffin. Grainamore claims if he can find them a hero, someone to jump into the big woo, the Waponies will give him those mineral rights to the Boobaroo. Why would I jump into a volcano? Glad you asked. Grainamore has it all figured out. Joe's brave. We know that from his days at the fire department. Plus, he's broke and dying. You, you want to wait it out here in this, in this apartment? It oh, sounds kind of grim to me. What a waste that would be. In another wordy monologue... Grainamore paints a rosy picture of Joe as hero to the Waponies. If you take the job, 
It'll be uh, 20 days from today before you'd have to actually jump into the volcano. He then lays out four credit cards. There's a Gold Amex, Diners Club, Visa Gold, and a Gold MasterCard. All bear the name Joseph Banks. Granamore tells Joe to go shopping today, then tomorrow he'll catch a plane to L.A. First class, naturally. You'll be met. Stay at the best hotel. And the next day... The yacht is a sneaky maneuver. Granamore claims his competitors monitor the airports. Joe will sail to the South Pacific where the Waponies will come out to meet him. Total red carpet situation. You're a national hero. You're Charles Lindbergh. It's wine, women, and song in the sweetest little paradise you ever saw. Then, just like Goofy, with very little ceremony, he'll jump into the volcano. Live like a king, die like a man. That's what I say. Granamore is a closer. After pumping Joe up with this speech, he says, What do you say? There's a long pause. Joe picks up one of the credit cards, considers it. All right, I'll do it. (laughs) Granamore claps his hands. He gives Joe his business card and paper tickets for the airplane. Noon, out of Kennedy tomorrow. We cut to a wide, down-angle shot of a section of highway. A long, white limo is cruising through traffic. We can hear Joe in voiceover. It sounds like he's on the phone. Hello, I have an American Express gold card. Can I rent a limousine for the day? Looks like he got it. Does a driver come with that? Great. Although most of this movie was shot in either California or Hawaii, IMDb does list New York as a shooting location. This is the start of it. We get what amounts to a second unit pan of the highway, widening out to look at the city. Cut to inside the limo. Joe is still plunking away on the ukulele. The shot changes. We're now looking in through the windshield. Hey, behind the wheel is the inimitable Ossie Davis. Here he's playing the character of Marshall, the put-upon but well-informed limo driver. Ossie Davis was a brilliant American actor with a fantastic voice. He was born in Georgia in December of 1917. Ossie's first roles would be uncredited in movies starting in 1950. His first TV appearance was in a TV movie in 1955. Ossie has 113 performer credits on his profile, but many of those include multiple episode appearances. His most famous was as Ponder Blue on 99 episodes of the 1990-94 sitcom Evening Shade. Ossie passed away in February of 2005 at the age of 87. So where would you like to go? Joe thinks he'd like to do some shopping today. All right. Where would you like to go shopping? Joe doesn't have any idea. He says he wants clothes, but he doesn't know where to get them. He then asks Marshall where he'd go. This prompts Marshall to pull the car over. Joe wonders why he's stopping. Just hire me to drive the car, sir. I'm not here to tell you who you are. We get more wordy, writerly dialogue here. Marshall rips into a meaty paragraph about clothes. He says they're important to him. They truly do make the man. Joe can't go hanging a reference about clothes out there and expect Marshall to fill in the blanks. Marshall asks Joe his name, then introduces himself. Wait a minute. I'm coming back. Cut to an exterior of the car. Marshall gets out of the driver's seat and climbs in the back next to Joe. We cut to a two-shot of the back seat. Marshall begins to interrogate Joe. He wants to know his situation. Joe says he's going on a long trip. Good. Where are you going? Tonight he's hitting the city, nice places, tomorrow to L.A., then on a yacht to the South Pacific. Hawaii? No, this really unknown little island. This is important because it means no tourists, or at least 
Joe doesn't think so. He says he's staying on the island for a couple of weeks and then... Then that's it. No need to go into specifics here. Marshall wants to know what kind of clothes Joe has right now. He says what he has are like what he's wearing. So you got no clothes. Harsh, but accurate, especially when you're talking first-class flights and a night on the town at nice places. We cut to the limo parked in front of a Giorgio Armani location. The address, very obviously 815, but no current or past Armani location I could find had that address. Since we had the 941 thing from earlier, I decided to consult the angel numbers again. 815 is also an angel number. It indicates life changes that include abundance, success, and personal growth. Is Shanley really jamming angel numbers into the crevices of this movie. In voiceover, we can hear Marshall asking if Joe wants a tux, an Armani tux. Joe says he'll get one if Marshall gets one. Can't be buying no Armani tux. I'm a working man. Not a lot of people can. These days, the cost of the budget-priced single-breasted Manhattan series from Armani starts at thirty-eight ninety-five. If you want something really nice, don't miss the Royal line. It's double-breasted, featuring both cashmere and silk. Royal line Armani tuxes start at $6,350. This is before you add in the suggested poplin shirt, silk tie, and classic lace-up shoes. Joe says Marshall isn't getting paid for all of this good advice he's dispensing. Let me buy the tux and we'll call it even. Marshall must decide this is a fair trade. We jump cut to both men looking very dapper in black double-breasted Armani tuxes. I feel like I'm getting married. They're standing on a tailor's platform in the store. I feel like I'm giving you away. That might be Anthony Gotti checking their cuffs. He is listed in the credits as Italian Taylor. Anthony's IMDb page looks just like the Spanish singer's pages. JVV is his only entry as a performer, and he does not include a headshot. Next up is a visit to Alfred Dunhill. This might be their old Madison Avenue address. Dunhill has moved to a new consolidated location since the movie was made. Joe is checking out some fancy silk boxers. I'll take nine pair. Our underwear salesman is being played by Pittsburgh-born actor Daryl Zwirling. And Daryl really was an actor. He has 57 credits on his IMDb profile. You've probably even seen Daryl. He played Mr. Lynch in the smash 1978 movie adaptation of the hit musical Grease. This appearance in JVV was one of his last. Daryl would have another movie credit in 1990, then he guest stars on an episode of Murder, She Wrote in 1991, and that would be all for Daryl's acting career. Daryl passed away in 2014 at the age of 85. A song begins under this montage. It's Mas Que Nada from Sergio Mendes and Brazil 66. It's being sung in Portuguese. The translation means roughly no problem. If a friend thanked you for helping them, the proper response would be Mas Que Nada. Marshall is looking good in his new tux. He's leaning against the limo, reading a copy of Scientific American. As he reads, a woman dressed as a Statue of Liberty comes up beside him. That's Jennifer Stewart dressed and made up in the blue-green tones of Lady Liberty. Jennifer is also not an actress. This is her only professional appearance listed on IMDb. Although I get the feeling Jennifer either is or at least was a professional Statue of Liberty. 
I did a little hunting and found a New York Times article from 2007 about Jennifer. Jennifer Stewart is the real deal when it comes to being a fake statue. During the Statue of Liberty's centennial celebration in 1986, Jennifer won a national lookalike contest. She beat out more than a thousand contestants who all resembled the famous lady. Jennifer was crowned live on the CBS Morning News. She's been doing the green thing ever since. She says the first time she headed to the park dressed up, it was mortifying. She felt stupid, but she did it. Since then, her perseverance has paid off. Jennifer has become the living embodiment of Lady Liberty. She has been photographed alongside Mayors Giuliani, Bloomberg, and de Blasio, smiling next to Senator Hillary Clinton, and with numerous local New York candidates. She's done work for the NYC Tourism Board, traveled to Singapore with NYC Olympic hopefuls, and as of 2007, she was making paid corporate appearances. Check the site livingliberty.com for more info about Jennifer and her work as a statue. Next stop on Joe's shopping adventure is a store called Horn of Africa. Here we see Joe trying on a new hat. It's time for a new phase in Joe's journey, which must mean time for a new hat. Back in the limo, we hear a voiceover from Marshall. Hi. Give me Cassie Samarelli, please. He's calling a friend who works in a high-end salon. Finally, it's time to tame the furry rodent that's been attacking Joe's neck the entire movie. Listen, I got somebody that needs you today. Okay. We cut to an exotic-looking woman with an interesting hairstyle. She holds a mirror in front of Joe. A prince in a fairy tale. Did you catch that voice? If you check the listing at the end of the movie, you will see the hairdresser is credited as being played by Lisa LeBlanc. The one line was enough to know this is actually the prolific American comic actress Carol Kane. She was very busy about this time with another movie role the same year. She had a much larger part in the Dennis Hopper Kiefer Sutherland feature flashback. No word as to why Ms. Kane went with the LeBlanc moniker. She does have one other line, a, a word, actually. Which makes it even more obvious who this really is. Oh, and by the way, nice haircut, Joe. Next up, a visit to the world's oldest hardware store, Hamaker Schlemmer. This location at 147 East 57th in New York has been the location of the iconic retailer since 1926. In 1998, to mark the 150th anniversary of HS as a company, Mayor Giuliani declared this block on 57th between Lexington and 3rd Avenue as Hamaker Schlemmer Way. Hamaker Schlemmer is known for carrying unique, interesting, and ultimately pretty useful items. They were the first to offer a pop-up toaster in 1930, the electric toothbrush in 1955, and the very first telephone answering machine in 1968. Unfortunately, after 96 years at this location, HS was forced to close in 2023. Their catalog business continues. Joe checks his new due in the window as he enters Amaker Schlemmer. This whole shopping segment feels like a bit of filler. Watching Tom Hanks putting on an AstroTurf green at HS adds to this feeling. I'll take it. Yes, sir. I didn't realize a portable putting green was recommended for South Pacific Island adventures. He does pick up a few more appropriate items. Swiss Army knife, world band travel radio, shaving kit, two brass Coleman lanterns, and the violin case bar. There you go, just like a real world traveler. 
Courtney Gibbs and William Ward are the performers assisting Joe at Hamaker Schlemmer. Courtney has a total of five performer credits, all in the early 90s. William has 18 performer credits, including on 13 episodes of the sitcom Cheers as a bar patron. Joe closes the red and white umbrella he'd been playing with. Will there be anything else, sir? I'll take this, too. Next up, the very important matter of selecting luggage. Joe's conferring with a man who is very into luggage. It's a central preoccupation of my life. This is Irish actor Barry McGovern. He was born in Dublin in 1948. Barry has 56 performer credits on his IMDb profile, with two upcoming. Most of the TV series he's in are Irish-based programs. Interesting side note about Barry, he is an expert lecturer and interpreter on the plays of Samuel Beckett. Barry has played the character of Vladimir in Beckett's Waiting for Godot more times than any other living actor. To Barry's character, good luggage is not just important to your travels, it's everything. All you have to depend on is yourself. And your luggage. Barry then quizzes Joe about his luggage needs. For instance, will Joe be traveling light or heavy? Heavy. Will he be flying? Flying and by ship. Barry's excited to hear about the ocean voyage. A real journey. Joe says he'll be on an island, but he doesn't know if he's going to be in a hut or what. Very exciting. He holds up a hand and tells Joe, as a luggage problem, he thinks he has just the thing. Barry then opens a door that looks a lot like a church door. A choir begins to sing. Not sure if they're hearing it in the store, but the choir is very appropriate for this reveal. We cut to a high and wide down angle shot of the luggage showroom. Barry pushes a huge steamer trunk onto the main floor. Inlaid in the center of the floor of this obviously high-end luggage store is a compass rose. After seeing the trunk displayed, Joe is dumbfounded. Wow. The trunk opens to reveal stacked drawers and even a spot for hanging clothes. It's practically a chest of drawers. The locks, rivets, and corner pieces all look to be brass fittings. This is our premier steamer trunk. All handmade. Only the finest materials. It's even watertight. Tight as a drum. Joe is marveling at the workmanship. Steamer trunk is an old term. It's referencing a time when ships were steam-powered back in the late 18 and early 1900s. Joe's steamer trunk appears to be flat-topped. Some steamers had domed tops. The reason for the dome? So no other trunk could be stacked on top of it. The domed trunks assured the owner their trunk would always be on the top of the pile when stored with other luggage. Barry says, quite frankly, if he had the need and the wherewithal, this is his trunk of choice. I'll take four of them. Wow, we don't get a total cost for these four trunks, but I'm betting Barry got Employee of the Month after this sale. He couldn't know, but Barry then makes a decidedly inappropriate comment considering Joe's situation. May you live to be a thousand years old, sir. You really can't buy a steamer trunk for travel anymore. What you can find are reproductions of vintage steamer trunks being used as coffee tables and room accents. There are some antique steamers available on eBay. Most can be had for well under $100. As for modern big suitcases, even they aren't all that popular. Flying has forced suitcase sizes to shrink in general. I found an article from 2021 on the website wellandgood.com talking about the biggest available modern suitcases. 
One of the biggest I've found comes from Mont Blanc, the same guys who make the pens. They produce a 20 by 30 by 11 inch 90 liter capacity suitcase with free personalization, but it is pricey. I know that's probably a surprise coming from the guys who sell $200 pens. The Mont Blanc Big Suitcase can be yours for $1,120. It's polycarbonate and supremely durable, but no word if it's waterproof. We cut to a rainy exterior shot. The limo now has Joe's four trunks lashed to the roof. Marshall asks if Joe wants to go back to Staten Island. No, no. Uh, a really nice hotel. Sure, might as well live it up his last night in New York forever. The plaza. plaza is nice. The plaza is very nice. It's a five-star hotel located at the corner of Fifth Avenue and Central Park South in New York. It's an 18-story French Renaissance-inspired chateau building. The current building was constructed between 1905 and 1907. According to Hotels.com, a single king room goes for $14.49 a night, including all taxes and fees. Want to add breakfast to that? It's another $120. Marshall may not be entirely sold on the niceness of the plaza. Where would you go? I'd go to the Pierre. Then we are off to the Pierre. The Pierre is also a very nice New York hotel. It's located on East 61st Street and 5th Avenue. It also looks onto Central Park. The Pierre was built in 1930. It's 41 stories with 714 rooms. The Pierre, while equally as stunning as the Plaza, is a bit of a deal compared to its better-known Central Park neighbor. You can get a king room at the Pierre for $12.94 a night, all taxes and fees paid. But that is an interior view. If you want something with the park view, be ready to kick in more than $300 a night extra for the privilege. The Pierre's breakfast add-on is only $60, so hey, some nice savings there. The in popular culture list included on the Pierre's Wikipedia page is a fun read. Yes, the fact Marshall recommended the Pierre over the plaza in Joe vs. the Volcano is on the list. We cut to Pierre bellhops moving the giant steamer trunks from off the limo roof. Joe invites Marshall to join him for dinner. I can't do that. I got the wife and kids at the end of the day, you know. A bellhop tells Joe everything's waiting for him at check-in. Marshall's concerned. Doesn't Joe have anybody? No, he doesn't, but Joe gets very philosophical about it. There's certain times in your life when I guess you're not supposed to have anyone, you know? Certain doors you're going to go through alone. Marshall shakes his hand and tells him he's going to be all right. Marshall, like Dee Dee, then leaves Joe's life forever. We cut to Joe in a suite that costs quite a bit more than what I quoted earlier. He's singing Blue Moon. The version that's playing is from Elvis Presley. There's a trivia error here on IMDb. Someone's claiming this version of Blue Moon is the same one that was playing in the Orbiter from Apollo 13. Same song, yes, but not the same version. The Apollo 13 Blue Moon was from the Mavericks. Using a song with moon in the title is no surprise. You'll see it more when we get out on the ocean, but one of Shanley's trademarks as a writer is the use of moons, especially full moons, in his stories. He is, of course, the man who won an Oscar for Moonstruck. Joe's hotel room is bigger than most New York City apartments. He is struggling to get into some new suspenders. Blue Moon continues as we follow Joe to the hotel restaurant, then bar. He sips from what would probably be a $30 cocktail modern day. We cut to Joe going for a walk, then in bed, but wide awake. 
We cut from Joe still awake at the Pierre to a beauty shot of an American Airlines luxury liner in flight. You know how a movie gets this kind of footage? It comes from American's ad agency because American is doing a paid product placement. I was worried about how Joe was going to get from the hotel to the airport with those trunks. Ah, the magic of editing. Ladies and gentlemen, we are beginning our descent into Los Angeles. No, you're not hearing things. The voice of the flight attendant is also being provided by Meg Ryan. They worked her to death on this movie. And speaking of Meg Ryan, when Joe exits the jetway, there's Meg Ryan. She's playing the second of her three roles. Here, she's holding a sign like a chauffeur might have, only hers is wildly decorated on a yellow background. It says Joseph Banks. This might be a good spot to mention something interesting about this name. There was another very famous Joseph Banks who also took an amazing voyage to the South Pacific. He was Captain James Cook's biologist during Cook's first great voyage from 1768 through 1771. Around 80 species of plants bear Banks' name, including a genus named for him, Banksia. I have no idea what Meg Ryan is doing with this character, but she is certainly dedicated to making it work. Hi, are you Joe Banks? Joe says he is, but who is she? I'm the daughter of the guy who hired you, Angelica Granamore. Okay, so what Meg is doing here is tough. She needed to create three different and distinct characters. This one doesn't really work for me, but I do admire the effort she's putting into it. Check the parade happening behind Joe. First, we've got the bros in the striped outfits, then a woman who looks like a Terminator version of Kathy Bates and a, uh, I don't know, a priest? He's wearing a huge wooden cross, his body is wrapped in some kind of wadded up sheet, and on his head is a huge fez. Running around and past the priest are what look like Catholic schoolgirls from an orphanage in a 30s tearjerker of a movie. It's an odd procession, but it fits right in with the vibe of Angelica. Daddy told me to tell you that I don't know what he hired you for and not to tell me, that I'm totally untrustworthy. She then puts her hand up by her mouth and confidentially adds, I'm a flibber to gibbet. I was surprised to discover this is a real word. They even spell it correctly in the captioning, F-L-I-B-B-E-R-T-I-G-I-B-B-E-T. According to Merriam-Webster, it's one of the many incarnations of the Middle English word flepperjebit. It meant gossip or chatterer. Its first known use with this spelling dates back to the 15th century. Its origins are onomatopoeic. It's supposed to sound like gossip's chattering. It is still a part of modern speech, although rarely used. Its modern meaning describes a silly, flighty person who's prone to gossip. You wouldn't want to tell a flipperty gibbet any important secrets. Come on, let's get out of here. I have some luggage. I'd call that an understatement. Oh, then follow me. Again, through the magic of editing, we cut to Joe's four massive trunks already lashed to the top and back of an old body-style checker cab. Good, I was dreading pulling those things off the luggage carousel. As the camera moves down along the side of the cab, don't miss the large logo extending over the front and back doors. To the left is the head of a guy with a heavy beard. He's wearing wireframe glasses and has a receding hairline. The words in the bar is next to and under him say, Neil's Hole Taxi. This is a shout out to Hawaii and one of their most active politicians, a guy named Neil Abercrombie. 
Neal would become the seventh governor of Hawaii in 2010. Starting in the 1970s, he was a Honolulu City Councilman and then a member of both the Hawaii Senate and House of Representatives. He was also a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Hawaii's first district for 19 years. Neil used an old-style checker cab with his face painted on the side as a campaign vehicle starting back in the 1970s. At first, it was just a cheap way to campaign, and it got him attention. Eventually, the cab became a symbol for Neil, both because he was an outsider, a mainlander from Buffalo, New York, and because he had a very unconventional political style. The camera tracks forward ahead of the cab. Joe and Angelica are leading the way in a red convertible Mercedes. I've never been to L.A. before. You're kidding me. What do you think? He says it looks fake. I like it. Anymore, it is rare for an actor to actually drive in a movie. For one thing, it's hard to add driving into the whole attention-fragmenting mess that is acting. There are also liability concerns and more younger actors or actors who grew up in big cities just don't drive. Here, I'm almost positive we are looking at Meg Ryan driving and Tom Hanks riding along. The voices were ADR'd in later, but I'm pretty sure those really are our stars just a-rocking down the highway. This is a great town. It stinks, but it's a great town. Cut to another dinner at another restaurant. We've got a very different Meg Ryan this time around. She has curly red hair, a cigarette, and a low-cut top. The food arrives. It's a seafood feast. Angelica has Dungeness crab, which she attacks with a hammer. They do look like little monsters or something. But they're good little monsters. I had a chuckle when the pepper guy showed up. This is a joke right out of the 80s. Restaurants, for some reason, decided the ultimate seasoning for your salad was fresh ground pepper. The pepper mills they used to deliver this very fresh pepper started getting bigger and bigger. By the late 80s, it was almost like the quality of a restaurant was determined by the size of their pepper mills. I never saw one this big. This one looks like it's a baseball bat. But the pepper mills were getting out of hand by 1990. So what did you do before you signed on with Daddy? Joe skips over the firefighter thing. He says he was an advertising librarian from a medical supply company. Angelica then delivers a great all-purpose, I don't know what you're saying and I don't really care, phrase. I have no response to that. Severed patron refiner Jonathan E. used this phrase to sum up his viewing experience after watching JVV for the first time. I have no response to that. Joe then asks what she does. She is hesitant to respond. Finally, she says, I'm a painter and a poet. The joke response to this would be, oh, so you're unemployed. As she's answering, Angelica's popping a pill. There's no explanation and Joe doesn't ask. She washes it down with her wine. Joe appears suitably impressed by Angelica's claimed profession. She casually points towards the bar and says, that's one of her paintings right there. It's a three-panel cartoon in full color of a red Mercedes convertible sitting at an overlook. Spread out before the car are the lights of L.A. The scene slowly dissolves as Joe is asking Angelica where she gets her ideas. Angelica's Mercedes is now parked in the same spot as the painting. I think this is the Hollywood Bowl overlook on Mulholland Drive, but I couldn't find confirmation. Joe is suitably impressed. A nice view. It, it's like 
It's like looking down on the stars. Check the license plate. On the back of Angelica's car, it says bad girl with an extra A in the word bad. We cut to a two-shot. Joe and Angelica are sitting uncomfortably in her car. Finally, after a few moments of awkwardness, Angelica asks, Would you like to hear one of my poems? Oh, yes, please. Sure. Okay, now get ready, Refiner. I'm going to play the entire poem for you. Long ago, the delicate tangles of his hair covered the emptiness of my hands. She is rubbing her palms as she recites this ode. There's a pause. Would you like to hear it again? I must say, keeping your poems short makes them easy to memorize. Joe says, okay, and Angelica reprises her performance. This time, it's even more emotional. Joe wonders what's the matter. Did you ever think about killing yourself? This is a loaded question for a guy who believes he has six months to live and is on a journey to kill himself in a volcano. But Joe doesn't seem to tie any of this question to himself. He's only concerned about her. Why would you do that? Why shouldn't I? Joe gets a little self-righteous here. He says some things aren't her job to take care of, maybe not even her business. Joe says he likes her poem. He's trying to cheer her up. But she's still wrestling with Joe's question from the restaurant. What does she really do? I'm a grown woman, and I live on my father's money. The restaurant? The one that was displaying her painting? That's my father's restaurant. There's another wordy and writerly exchange here in the car. Joe tells Angelica she's got to make a choice between killing herself and doing something she's afraid of doing. When talking about doing the thing she's afraid of, he says, Why not take the leap? Ah, Shanley. In a surprising bit of self-awareness, Angelica does realize what she's afraid of. You mean stop taking money and leave L.A.? More philosophical musings from Joe. Angelica tries to ignore it, but Joe is piercing her armor of disaffection. She blows up with an outpouring of emotion directly from Shanley's word processor. This is one of those typical conversations where we're all open and sharing our innermost thoughts and it's all bullshit and a lie and it doesn't cost you anything. Wow, she should write that down. It's another poem. Joe goes into a long and halting monologue about time and decisions. He's talking as much to himself as he is Angelica. After Joe visibly wrestles with these issues, even seemingly questioning his decision, Angelica is in tears, but again can only say, I have no response to that. Then maybe she's not the one Joe should be sharing these thoughts with. He decides he wants to go back to the hotel. We cut to the Mercedes on Santa Monica Boulevard. Angelica is parking, dropping Joe off. Don't miss the front license plate as she pulls over. This one says, good girl. Angelica's car is as confused as she is. Do you want me to come in? I could come up with you. Joe declines. He's not going to take advantage of this troubled and confused woman. Will you meet me for breakfast? She's supposed to have Joe to the boat by 10, but she says she could meet him for breakfast. Okay. Angelica is a mess. She's crying again. I told you I was a flipper to gibbet. Shanley must have had that one on a word of the day calendar. He is getting his money's worth out of it. Angelica roars away in her red Mercedes. Joe is left walking along the boulevard. A song begins as Joe walks to the beach and sits. This is Marooned Without You. Lyrics by none other than John Patrick Shanley. Music by Georges Delarue. It was written for this movie. 
Not sure who is singing. In the soundtrack section on IMDb, it's shown as being performed by Tom Hanks. Tom does actually sing another Shanley written tune a little later. The song continues as Joe sits on the beach until the sun comes up. The real sun dissolves into a painted sun with a face on it. It's another of Angelica's painting. She's showing it to Joe over breakfast. I'm sorry I was so grotesque last night. Angelica just has a unique vocabulary. Joe says she was fine, but she thinks she somehow disappointed him. So what did Daddy hire you to do? Ah, but just yesterday she told him he's not supposed to tell her what he's been hired to do. Joe deflects the question by saying it's complicated. Okay, don't tell me. Angelica has his cigarette going with her coffee. Meg Ryan looks very comfortable handling and smoking the cig. Turns out Meg Ryan has been known to smoke. Although she has denied the habit, there are numerous candid photos out there of Meg with a cigarette. Angelica's a bundle of nerves. She says, Patricia probably knows what Joe's doing. Hey, a new name. Joe asks, who's Patricia? She's my half-sister. She's the one who's sailing you wherever you're going. This is new information for Joe. She is? Wherever they're eating, there is a large parrot in a cage over Joe's shoulder. You can hear it squawk occasionally during the scene. Angelica is surprised Joe doesn't know about Patricia. Then again, this is all being orchestrated by her father. Daddy loves a secret almost as much as he loves money. Joe is now dressed in his Horn of Africa attire. Angelica notices. Why are you dressed like Jungle Jim? Joe is immediately self-conscious. He says he could change. He puts on the wide-brim safari hat. You think this is inappropriate for the boat? Angelica smiles, almost suppressing a laugh. No, it's fine. Suddenly, Angelica says they have to go. She has a guy dropping Joe's trunks at the marina. Who may or may not have understood my travel directions. We cut to a view of the Tweedledee. Is that it? Yeah. Sitting at the dock is a good-looking twin-masted schooner. It's probably 60 or 80 feet with a below-decks cabin. Joe's trunks made it. They're stacked on the dock with a pretty blonde sitting on them. Oh, now hold on. That's Meg Ryan. This is her third character. For her final turn, she's the scrappy tomboy daughter of Granamore named Patricia. As we're about to meet Patricia and get on the boat, this feels like a great place to stop for the day, refiners. We are just over halfway through this movie. If you can believe it, everything gets even weirder when we get on the water. Next time out, we will board the Tweedledee with Patricia and start our journey to the island of Waponiwoo. Before you hit the elevator, I wanted to remind you about this severed Patreon page. You can help me out and join the fun as a patron refiner. The severed Patreon page is your place for severance talk, behind-the-scenes info, and other goodies you won't get from the regular podcast. Become a patron refiner by going to patreon.com slash severed pod. That's patreon.com slash severed pod. I need to make some money off this podcasting thing, or I might have to go find a real job. Sign up now. You can help to keep me podcasting and keep the podcast commercial free for only $5 a month. The theories and predictions continue to fly about season two. All we know for sure is that they are back to work at York Studios. Beyond that, no dates or production schedules have been made public. Make sure to keep tabs on the Severed Facebook page, even if you don't become a patron. I'll be reporting on all the details about the season two premiere as soon as I know anything. All right, refiners, it's time to get back to your Audi lives. Exit via the elevator and remember, as always, please... Stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate Severance podcast. 
Severed is written, produced and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.